0: You're listening to episode 393 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoef. Hello, Max. How are we? We are terrific, David. How
1: are you? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, We're looking forward to um, a cold weekend. It's about time it got
0: cold. Um, Though the the prospect of snow is a little dubious. That's right. We might get some of that stuff. But uh, hey. It's winter, at least for us in the northern hemisphere. And so we're supposed to be used to this. Yeah, that's
1: true. As I get older, colder seems to get colder.
0: It's true. It does, doesn't it?
1: So we got a lot of news tonight. We've got what can Vertal learn from helicopters, a counter-unmanned aircraft missile, or is it a drone, a birthday drone light show, saving lives with a drone, a few sensor data across manned and unmanned aircraft and getting the most from your DJI Maverick 3 drone. What do you think? Should we get started? Let's get started, David. Five lessons in evertol can learn from legacy helicopter airlines. Okay, I have to admit this caught my eye and I actually thought it was an interesting article. New York Airways lasted from 1953 to 1979, and Los Angeles Airways flew from 1947 to 1971. And unfortunately, it was accidents that ended the two corporations. A um, couple of them were really severe incidents.
0: They were. And so what we have here in this Flying Magazine article is the headline uh, suggests, what are the lessons from the helicopter airline business that eVTOL can can benefit from i think it's a it's a great question when you when you see it it's an obvious question right because helicopters have been used in the past to try to create airlines to try to transport passengers uh, eVTOL is you know is it the same is it different other than the fact that we're dealing with different technology but some of the issues are the same so Here are five of them. And David, what's first?
1: The first, of course, is safety. Um, New York Airways helicopter crash killed four passengers and a few people on the ground. If anybody doesn't know, the Pan Am building had a heliport on the top of it. And they flew blowing Vertol um, 107s, which is a civilian version of the C-Night. And... um, Unfortunately, one day, due to stiff winds, it fell off the side of the building, killing four people. The rotor blades crashing down. So, immediately, rooftop heliports were banned, and two Los Angeles Airways crashes killed 44 people. Um, They used Sikorsky S-61s, or um, the equivalent of the civilian version of the Sea King.
0: So, safety is, I mean, it seems like kind of an obvious thing, but... The example from the past, the historic example, is that public perception, public confidence can change pretty quickly if uh, there are safety issues. Um, I don't even think they need to be as dramatic as as these are, where, where you had fatalities. But if there are other accidents with eVTOLs in the future, then that will affect people's confidence in them as a mode of transportation. So yeah, these companies, and I think they are, but these companies need to keep that in mind.
1: The other interesting thing is um, these were urban mobility. The fact that, you know, you could get quickly from the airport to downtown New York or downtown Los Angeles. These two airlines operated on the same model as what Evertol is. There's a lot of parallels involved. Now, of course, like you said, Max, safety's changed and been upgraded. And to encourage public acceptance, most eVTOL companies plan routes to and from the airports. And that's going to be the target market, I think, for, for the beginning of eVTOL.
0: And I think the public perhaps has maybe a little more confidence if these are operating through airports uh, as opposed to, possibly creating um vertiports vertiports that's the word i couldn't think of uh vertiports so you know some new kind of infrastructure i think again i think that if it uses existing infrastructure that being things like airports that can help with uh, the issue of public accepting these
1: the other the other part about it is keep an eye on critical operating costs. Helicopter rides in the 50s and 60s were not financially viable. The technology wasn't mature yet. Um, the eVTOL electric versus fos- fossil fuel means fewer moving parts, but you still have to build that infrastructure. And I I don't know, and batteries, who knows if batteries will ever be cost effective.
0: So eVTOL companies need to need to keep an eye on on managing their costs. The the helicopter airlines that we saw previously um, in the 50s and 60s, uh, they ended up uh, receiving a, a lot of government subsidies just to stay afloat. I don't know that um, that would be in the cards for E-Vito.
1: I Yeah, well, you never know. You know, we've been subsidizing the airlines over the last couple of years. But, yes, I mean, it's still, it's still a financially risky startup in business. And, and like we said, this goes back to safety first. If you have an accident, you might as well kiss your company goodbye because that's, that's going to change things dramatically. Oh, and the, this, this next one I thought was interesting. Maintain tight roots. Focus on the roots to and where the demand is. Don't over-consolidate roots and limit demand. It, that's a bit of a tug of war, don't you think, Max?
0: Yeah, it is kind of uh, obviously. If uh, uh, you you spread out over too much of an area, not necessarily geographically, but just over uh, over demand, you know, you're diffuse. You know, your operating costs um, can be can be higher. Whereas if you consolidate and focus on certain high demand routes, you know, your unit operating costs can be lower and so forth. But th- this is something that is a potential lesson from from the past that eVTOL companies need to keep in mind.
1: We could also expand that out from the airlines. There have been a lot of airlines that took more ri- financially risky routes, and that caused them to go out of business. So I mean, I, I think, but that goes back to urban to airport or um, urban to suburban will be the routes. I mean, and, and it'll be the larger cities first. You're not going to catch an air taxi where I live here in Delaware for a long time. And last but not least, include the first and last mile.
0: This is an interesting concept. So the helicopter airlines from the past relied on transportation from the heliport to the final destination and vice versa. The first mile, of course, is so how do you get to the Verde port? And the last mile is that, okay, when you're at your destination or when you're at the destination that that you're flown to, is that your final destination or do you then need another type of transportation to get from there to your actual final uh, destination? And an example from the article is that Archer and Joby plan to include the first and last mile in their services and Joby, for example, intends to utilize Uber's mobile rideshare app to include ground transportation. So that that's an important thing and something to be considered. If you know if you focus just on, uh, you know, the the flight uh, departure and arrival, um, is that the entire trip? That the customer wants to take, or is that only just a segment of a of a trip, with that ground transportation or other transportation needing to be part of it? So integrating all that, um, I think, is uh, uh, important uh, for eVTOL companies to to think about seriously.
1: So yeah, you get off your eVTOL at the heliport downtown or the Vertiport, and then you get in your um, Tesla Uber to go. You know, it'll be a, it'll be an electrifying experience.
0: I'm sure. So when I got to the end of the article, there was a little if you call that a byline—but a little bio of the author, who of this article, who's Tom Patterson, and David. I know Tom Patterson. I've met him before, and I've been racking my brain. It was a few years ago, I think it was at Boeing that uh, that I met him when he was r- reporting for CNN. But now he's a staff reporter for Flying Magazine. Uh, I hadn't. I didn't know that he had uh, that he had moved and done some other things in between. But that's great. Great to hear that uh, Tom is with Flying Magazine, and we'll look forward to more of his uh, insightful articles.
1: Yeah, this was a really good article. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it from the history aspect, also up to the making it relevant today. Okay, the next story is just completely off. <laughs> yeah, this the is wire. swinging
0: all the way to the other side. Isn't
1: it? Yeah, um, I love my dog Bean, he's one of the loves of my life, but I don't think I would spend sixteen thousand dollars on drones to celebrate his birthday. However, in China, a woman hired 520 drones at a cost of sixteen thousand dollars US
0: for her pup. And Max, tell us about her pup. Little Dodo, who turned 10 years old. And this woman really wanted to celebrate. So she hired these drones to put on a, a light show, a drone light show. And it formed a birthday cake in the sky and uh, the, the present for the dog that kind of looked like a, a jack-in-the-box. It was all very exciting. But th- there was an issue that came up apparently if this wasn't absurd
1: enough here's where it gets really weird it was an area of high-rise residential buildings and it was designated a no-fly zone the authorities said they would have shot down the drones if they had seen them people should apply for police approval before flying drones now max i was thinking about this when i read the article okay Whose responsibility do you think should that fall? The drone
0: operator or the drone hirer? The customer. I think the the company that put on the drone light show, I would say, should know that they were uh, asked to fly fly in a no-fly zone. Um, And additionally, if there was a possibility of them getting approval, to fly, that they you know they should have done that, but I, I don't think you can expect a woman to <laughs> to, to know um, necessarily. Um, but
1: I, yeah, but Dodo should have known. Dodo,
0: yeah, and I don't think she got in trouble because the way this uh, article is is written, but the way that the uh, situation is described is that the authorities said they you know would have shot down, but they didn't. They didn't see this, so I'm not sure she's in trouble. But there's another little. I don't know, kind of a fun cultural item from this article, uh, which is, why 520 drones? Well, in China, 520 is a common love phrase. So in Mandarin, when you say 520 in Mandarin, it sounds a lot like, I love you. It's commonly used uh, for expressions... Of love and and things like that in China, so that's kind of cute.
1: Yeah, that's kind of that's that's neat. Um, I know that in China, numerology is is important um, culturally. So that that does that gives you another takeaway. I mean, we five twenty drones. I five twenty <laughs> bean. You know, it just we we you know I I five twenty amber. So we're 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 all good. We're all know, good. So. All right, let's get to some hardware, military hardware. This footage of jet powered coyote drones obliterating other drones is incredible. And this, of course, is from the drive.com, the war zone, you know, that website I'm so fond of. Rayathon Missiles and Defense released a video showing coyote missiles launched from a truck taking out different
0: fixed wing drones. And boy, is it cool. Yeah, the images are. are- Are pretty dramatic. These uh, drones are the yeah. Are these drones or missiles? I mean, you know, in some places in this article they they call them drones, and other other places they look they look like missiles. They look like missiles to me. They're tube launched, and they have folding you know fins that open up when they come out of the tube. I would call them guided missiles. Uh, They
1: are definitely a missile. They're not a rocket. They are able to change direction and course. And um, track the object that they're they're about to destroy. So, and I think they pretty much do that autonomously, autonomously. So, where I would call them a guided missile, they're not quite a guided missile because guided missiles usually have either a laser or a tow line, you know, a line, electronic line wire to guide them. So, I mean, Coyote is artificial intelligence so it's it's making its own decision it's in a
0: it's a murky area how about that so it gets its initial thrust from from a rocket motor or or maybe two if you look at the video it kind of looks like it's got two but anyway that, after that it transitions and a small jet turbine takes over powering this thing so it is uh, it is maneuverable but in these images and we have uh, a video, which you'll be able to see in the show notes. But in most cases, the Coyote takes out the drone not by smashing into it, but by detonating in close proximity. It has blast fragmentation warheads. And when these things explode, there's a sort of a ring-shaped blast pattern that's really, it's one of those things where it's almost beautiful even though it's an explosion, just because of the shape and the
1: color. I mean, we, we've we done enough air shows, Max, you and I, that there's not there's nothing more satisfactory than an explosion on the ground, a pyrotechnic that goes off that makes a perfect donut circle. You know, at Oshkosh, they do things like fly airplanes through them, you know, just because they're really cool. And it's like... It's like your great-great-grandfather blowing smoke rings out of his pipe. Yes. You know, I mean, it's – but this blast fragmentation, so what what it does is it basically built – the missile itself detonates and not by impact, by area location. So it creates a dense layer of FOD for the other aircraft to fly into, causing it to um, be damaged. So it – Proximity fuses are, have been around for a long
0: time, but this is, this is pretty spectacular as far as the images go. And this is something that wouldn't be used to take out DJI Phantoms, for example, I think. This is, this is for military applications for larger drones, I would say. You agree?
1: I would agree. I, I, there, There's the old thing using a um, sledgehammer to swat a fly. This would definitely, for a phantom, would be the fly, and this would be a sledgehammer. But if it's a high-risk environment, it's what you have. You, I wouldn't be surprised if the Army put it in. Well, this is where this is the next part comes in, which is, Coyote 2s are ha- supposed to have a dogfight capability, according to Raytheon making it capable of engaging highly maneuverable targets. So a Phantom would be a highly maneuverable target in small. So if you've got something that's got a danger of ground troops, you know, they might use it to take it out.
0: And I understand this is the second block of Coyotes. The block one was kind of a different different aircraft, and block threes, which are coming next, are are going to be different still. So I don't know, maybe they're using, maybe Raytheon is using the same core in effect in building different types of drones, missiles. Different types missiles. of different missiles, yeah. yeah.
1: It, it sounds like it, you have the more experience with that, but you can grow out capabilities from one, you know, and that's happened with a lot of missiles over the years where a missile starts out and then it gets grow, it gets either larger or more maneuverable or whatever, so... Cardiac arrest. A drone helped save cardiac arrest patient in Sweden. I and I have this article because tonight we had Swedish meatballs and noodles. Cause,
0: cause that's we, why we have this article? That's right. That's right. Or well, is that you know. or is that, or is the article why you had Swedish meatballs? Well, no, we had Swedish meatballs because someone went to IKEA. Okay. So this uh, Boy, the Swedes have their act together here, I think. Yes. So this was a 70-year-old man who was out shoveling snow in his driveway, and he suffered a cardiac arrest. And what happened after that was kind of like clockwork. Everdrone dispatched an
1: autonomous drone with an automated external defibrillator. It arrived within three minutes. A doctor on the scene used a defibrillator at the man's house. All this before the ambulance arrived. Now, the doctor did not arrive by drone.
0: No, but <laughs> the doctor happened to be driving by and saw this uh, this man blacked out on his driveway. So he stopped to see what was going on. But they have an interesting system. In Sweden, the emergency number is 112. I guess that's like our 911. 911. So the doctor said that uh, the man had no pulse. He started doing CPR, and he asked another bystander to call 112. And then he said, this is great, this is from the doctor. He said, just minutes later, I saw something flying above my head. It was a drone with a defibrillator. Pretty cool. But they have a system in Sweden for doing this sort of thing. And that emergency call center uh, initiates a request for drone assistance, ATC approves the takeoff, and within 60 seconds of the first alarm, the drone is airborne. That's amazing. Now, they have a mission control that monitors operations, but it's an autonomous flight. And when the drone approaches, the operator confirms the drop location, and this defibrillator is lowered to the ground, and in this case, to the waiting Doctor, I think this is just uh, just amazing.
1: And I remember talking about this when it was coming online. Um it you know, and we were sort of marvelled at what the potential was, but this is practical real-time real life situation, you know. Um it's nice to know that the doctor didn't panic when he had the drone flying over his head with the AED. You know, it's also really nice that the guy who was 71 and shoveling his driveway, the doctor found. But the technology to save lives is maturing, you know. And Sweden definitely has got, um, the, gotten themselves together really quickly on this.
0: So we've got fused data up next.
1: Fused air threat data to a command center, right? And this is from ga.asi.com, which is... Two Avengers equipped with Lockheed Martin pods autonomously sync fuse air threat data to command center. So General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Incorporated, G-A-A-S-I, demonstrated sending fused sensor data to a command center. Okay,
0: what's fused sensor data? So the way I understand it is that you've got Multiple sensors, data coming from multiple sensors could be on different aircraft. Some of them could be manned. Some of them could be unmanned. But you want to bring all of this together and deliver that data to a centralized place, a command center or something. Does that sound like I know what I'm talking about? It does.
1: It, you always sound like you know what you're talking about, Max. Yeah. <laughs> <It's, laughs> um. And that's what my interpretation of it is. I kind of look at it like a 3D image. Normally, like you have the old stereoscopes or where you have two images of the same image, but they're taken from different angles. And then you have the glasses that fuse them together to make one image. Well, that's what I would call the data would be fusing. So you've got two different aircraft looking at maybe the same thing and providing different versions of the data and then combining it so that a manned aircraft can take out the target.
0: So in this case, in this uh, demonstration or this test, there were two Avenger UAS, and they were both carrying the Lockheed Martin Legion pod, uh, which that's the sensors, uh, which is something that's been around for for a while and has been mounted on other aircraft um, in the past— F-15s, for example, and some others. But the, uh, the General Atomics Senior Director of Advanced Programs, Michael Atwood, said that the Avenger with Legion pod demonstrates how collaborative autonomous platforms with advanced sensing can deliver persistent shared air domain awareness.
1: So two hour, the two-hour flights used the Legion pod's infrared search and track system detected multiple fast moving aircraft in the op- operating area Lockheed Martin fusion software blended the sensor data from both pods in real time and the Avengers streamed it to the ground station and then the next step would be to have that data transmitted to an aircraft to take out the fast moving targets hmm. so it's it's really a data management system and the more eyes the better i guess that's always been the tech the, the thing so and to be able to communicate two aircraft over the horizon between each other is really important.
0: And we have a video that, uh, again, will be in the show notes. This is the Legion pod flying on an F-16. And it's from a few years ago, 2017, actually. So it's been around a while. Um, but it shows you what this Legion pod looks like anyway, I don't know, David, it was a lot larger than I was kind of expecting. I mean, I don't really know how how much volume is taken up by a sensor array and all the associated equipment, but I mean, it's a pretty good-sized
1: pod. It is a big pod, but like everything else, those kind of pods get smaller over time. hmm it's definitely bigger than what was if you if you remember old school F16s with lantern pods this is a a larger sensor suite and it does substantially more than just the low altitude navigation and tracking which is what lantern stands for at night mm-hmm. it's definitely a more mature technology and the legion pod also makes Fourth-generation fighters talk to fifth-generation fighters. The F-16 and the F-15 carrying a Legion pod have the same kind of data transmission and data sensor suites that, say, an F-22 or, even more importantly, an F-35 has. So it brings your it brings your um, fourth-generation or four-plus generation aircraft up to the modern-day
0: fifth-generation F-22, F-35s. And last, we got a video. Yeah, we heard from Dan. Dan is from danstube.tv. And he recently created a video with tips and settings for the DJI Mavic 3. The Mavic 3 drone is a a pretty impressive device. It's it's really designed around professional-grade cinematography. It's not a recreational drone by any means, but Dan has created this video, 28 Must-Know Tips and Settings for the DJI Mavic 3 that uh, covers a lot of the, the, the menu settings and uh, how to uh, set it up, how to operate it. It's a, a pretty useful video if you're uh, interested in the Mavic 3.
1: If you got one for Christmas, it's a great starter, um, and and it's it, it's well thought out. It it makes perfect sense. It's a good video.
0: The Mavic Three. It's if you're not familiar with it, it uses a four thirds CMOS Hasselblad camera, which probably really means Hasselblad branded. Uh, I'm sure they're not the manufacturer. Well, I don't know.
1: Hasselblad. It probably Hasselblad
0: glass. Nah, eh, I don't know. It's like. Is it like um, Sony with Leica lenses, which, yeah. you know, Sony makes the lenses. But in any event, uh, it's uh, got a 28 times hybrid zoom the uh, lens uh, f uh, stop from 2.8 to f11. And it's a 24 millimeter equivalent lens with just under 13 stops of dynamic range. Uh, the, the Mavic 3 is uh, 46 minutes of extended flight time. 16 kilometer video signal transmission range, and with all that, as as you know, you might expect, it's not inexpensive. The base price is uh, around twenty two hundred dollars in the United States, anyway. But there are lots of options that you can add on that'll easily double that. So you could pretty quickly be looking at a five thousand dollar drone, but. If you would either just like to learn something about that drone, this is a good video. If you have one, this is a good video. Or if you're thinking about purchasing one, this will show you a lot about what the capabilities are.
1: We've talked about uh, Mavics, and we've talked about other Phantoms and stuff. Um, It's a good basic primer on a pro or or a semi-pro UAS. So we definitely recommend it. Thanks to Dan for sending it to us and sending
0: us the link. we got a video of the week. We have lots of videos this week, David, but there's a video of the week specifically.
1: Well, I like this. A drone that can fly and swim unveiled. A telecom company called KDDI in Japan. It's sort of a hybrid. They're looking to survey fish and shellfish farms and infrastructure inspection like dams. When you want to survey fish and shellfish farms, you don't want to disturb the fish and shellfish, and normally you'd have to take a motorboat out to deploy whatever UAS is. In this case, this little quadcopter goes out with its little drone and lands on the water and deploys its drone from its belly cage, and then the the underwater drone, the U A, the the U S, yeah. <laughs> USS, that's right. USS Um the USS goes down and does the surveys and then comes back up to the surface, gets picked up, and the quadcopter flies it back to base.
0: Pretty neat. You know what I thought of when I was watching this video? So the the main drone flies to the location and it looks like it's got some, some foam blocks or something on the on the rotor arm. So it can touch down on the water and, and sit there and float. And then this other underwater drone is held sort of in the belly of it, and this um, you know this thing sort of opens up, and then the underwater drone takes off to do its inspection things and so forth. Um, but the, the thing, you know, what it looks like to me, David, it looks like it's it looks like it's a pregnant drone giving birth. Okay, that's all I could think of because that's that's kind of what it does. This is true, except except the it, the reverse occurs. <laughs> Right, right. When the when the underwater underwater drone then returns after its mission, it gets kind of scooped back up by the uh, by the main drone and then it's more it like takes a off.
1: kangaroo and a joey in in its pouch.
0: That's now see that's a better analogy, but that's not
1: what you thought of. I know. Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to bail you out
0: here. Cut me some break. <laughs> no, you that's a good that's a better way better analogy. So anyway they uh, KDDI hopes to commercialize this in the future but you can you can take a look at that video at our website the UAVdigest.com. and the other videos we mentioned uh, the the Mavic 3 video from Dan the Legion Pod on the F16 uh, the drone of the uh, rather the video about the emergency medical service in Sweden we've got all those Oh, another one. Boy, lots of videos, David. We've also got a video of the Raytheon drone, the Coyote. Definitely check out that. Because yeah, if you like to blow that's... things up, that uh, that's a good one. So in any event, we really want to thank you for listening to this episode of the UAV Digest. As I mentioned, the videos are all at the UAVDigest.com, and this is episode 393.
1: And of course... On social media, you can find Max and I on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. And, of course, our Twitter account is at UAV Digest. And last but not least, you can find us on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAV com. And we'll be happy to give you an invite. So
0: with that, I'm going to say
1: I need to go do homework. So this is
0: David in Delaware. And this is Max, who is not in school and hopefully will never go back to school and thus have any homework to do. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: Bye, everybody. And thanks for listening.